This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Chapter 5. Most certainly, this is um, an incredibly unpleasant chapter. Um, But it's an incredibly important chapter. So we're going to read the first five verses. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your sight or from your midst, sorry. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." So this, uh, this passage is um, obviously about church discipline. And as I was thinking about this today, I wanted to make a few preliminary remarks regarding discipline that, um, that we probably need to be reminded of. And the first is, is that, that Jesus Christ, through the gospel actually creates the church. Okay? The church is not a human institution. The church is a creation of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and he creates the church through the gospel. And so the church is created through the gospel, and therefore the church is, is defined by the gospel. And so when we think about this, this reality of the church being created by Christ through the gospel, we, we need to realize that, that, that what we're talking about is this, is that the gospel comes and, and not only makes us individually new. That's true, right? The gospel comes, and when the gospel comes to you in power, it's your sins that are forgiven, It's you that are reconciled to God. It's you that are adopted into God's family. But the gospel not only makes us new, the gospel actually puts us into a relationship with the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, and furthermore, the gospel also puts us into relationship with one another. And so this is, this is how the gospel, in a sense, creates the church. It not only makes us right with God and puts us in relationship with the triune God, but it also makes us right with each other, putting us into the same body. And so we become not only a part of God's family by adoption, but we become to one another brothers and sisters in the bonds of Christ. 
And by the way, those bonds are bonds that are thicker and dearer and stronger and more enduring than even the bonds of biology. And so what the gospel does as it creates the church, it also defines the church. And therefore, what, it, what that means is that the gospel actually defines our responsibilities one to another. The gospel not only declares that I've been made right to the Father or with the Father through the Son in the Spirit, but the gospel also now defines what it means for us to be rightly related to each other in Jesus Christ. So the gospel defines how we are to treat each other, how we are to live with each other. In other words, it's the gospel that defines church life. And the heart of our responsibilities to each other, our mutual responsibilities, the heart is love. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14 says, do all things in love. Love is actually what what drives our relationships with each other. In fact, Jesus actually says that this is the badge, this is the identity marker of those who are his disciples, and that is that we have love for each other. Our identity marker is not, um, you know, that, that we carry a certain study Bible, or our identity marker is not that we have, you know, a, a fish on our car. Our identity marker is that we have love for each other. And so... Love for the church, broadly speaking, and love for individual church members actually requires the practice and application of church discipline. Now that sounds really strange to modern ears. Love to the church to a local church family, and love to specific particular brothers and sisters, members within that church, requires the faithful application and practice of church discipline. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, I prefer not to use the term brain surgeon anymore, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that trying to be a faithful church in 21st century America is an uphill battle. Okay? Um, stop and think about this. So if, if what I said is true, and I think it's biblical, I think it's true, um, church discipline, first of all, is, is just generally not practiced. But where it is practiced, it is almost always seen to be unloving. Okay? That's, that's the first uphill battle, is that to actually be loving, according to New Testament definition, means that you practice discipline. The culture looks at, even the church culture, looks at the practice of discipline as unloving. The other thing that makes this an uphill battle is that church discipline only makes sense if there is a formal recognizable membership. In other words, 
Church discipline only makes sense if you can identify who's in and who's not. So you have somebody that comes in and they visited for two or three weeks and you find out they're living with their girlfriend. You don't say, we're going to put you under church discipline. You have somebody that's committed themselves formally to the body, then they're the ones that are subject to church discipline, right? So membership is actually, um, in a sense, the undergirding of what makes discipline sensible, okay? Um, you don't have membership, how can you discipline, all right? Now, this uphill battle, church membership is often not practiced today. In fact, lots of churches look at the idea of membership as some sort of uh, ecclesiastical vestige of the past that's better done away with uh, in our consumer culture because membership requires commitment and we have uh, an allergy to commitment. And so why actually do something that you want people to come in? So why actually talk about something that they're going to be allergic to and might not come back? So, lots of churches just forego the idea of formal membership. Um, But even when it is practiced, a lot of times it's just practiced as a superficial ritual. Case in point, throughout the South, and this is not only a Southern problem, but it's most pronounced in the South. Throughout the South, you have Southern Baptist churches and I've preached in some of them that will have a membership of five, six hundred people with 75 people in attendance, right? Okay. Do you know why? Because you have people that are going to a different church that are still members. You have people that are dead that are still members. You have people that have moved that are still members. You have people that have just apostatized and are still members. And the whole idea of membership is you, you've come up to the front and then you're given the right hand of fellowship and you become a member. And so, so membership is not all that popular, but where membership is practiced, oftentimes it's practiced in such a superficial way that it's almost meaningless, Where church membership is either not practiced or superficially practiced, it is because of a diminished significance of the local church. So th- this is, th- this is in a sense, sort of brings the uphill battle full circle. One of the reasons why we have such a challenge with the idea of discipline uh, is because we have this incredible challenge with the idea of, of meaningful membership. And one of the reasons why we have incredible problems with meaningful membership is because we've diminished the importance and the significance of the local church. And so today, I mean, you know, especially in our country, our culture, today, you know, the most important thing, of course, is individual salvation, your own personal Jesus, and the, 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 the radical individualism has actually undermined the significance of the local church. 
The fact is, is that a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals just sort of look at the church as, as some sort of, um, uh, you know, topping. It's some, it, it, it's, it's, maybe it's an appetizer, maybe it's a dessert, maybe it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not central and crucial to their spiritual life. Jonathan Lehman in his book on um, the offense of love quotes a, a Barna study. And listen to these numbers. It's actually, this was surprising to me. He says, while nearly half of the adult population attends religious services during a typical week, fewer than one out of every five adults firmly believes that a congregational church is a critical element in their spiritual growth, and just as few strongly contend that participation in some type of community of faith is required for them to achieve their full potential. Listen to this. So out of that group, 17% say, quote, a person's faith is meant to be developed mainly in the involvement in a local church or by involvement in a local church. 17% think that spiritual growth and development should take place in a local church. Seems pretty low to me. So Barna has another category, uh, and, and then he has people that he categorizes as having a biblical worldview, okay? So out of all of the people that had a, quote, biblical worldview, only 25% agreed with this statement. The centrality of the local church is necessary for a person's spiritual growth. Now that causes me to question whether they have a biblical worldview or not, Right? He goes on, just as few adults, 18%, firmly embrace the idea that spiritual maturity requires involvement in a community of faith. So as we come to a passage like this, this passage seems like it is from outer space. Paul uses language that seems so utterly foreign to us. And the reason it is so foreign to us is because church discipline is virtually non-existent, because membership is not meaningful, because the significance of the local church has diminished. You take the corollary. When we actually value the church as the gospel community of Jesus, right? Built by the gospel, sustained by the gospel, defined by the gospel. When we see the church as, listen to how Trinitarian this is, all right? When we see the church as the people of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we see that reality as central to our life in Christ, then we start to value the church. If we, if we see um, belonging to the people of God, to the body of Christ, being the temple of the Holy Spirit as indispensable to our life in Christ, we value the church. If we see that, then the idea of membership in the church is seen to be a privilege that's really nothing less than, than an expression of our own belonging and 
a means of grace. So, so let, let, me, let me back up just a second. When we start to see the significance and the centrality of the local church, we start to see membership in the local church as a privilege which expresses our belonging to the church, but also we see that membership as a means of grace. What do I mean by that? I mean that we actually see membership as, as the hub of the one another's of the New Testament, whereby we actually um, uh, encourage one another, exhort one another, we pray for one another, we have koinonia with one another, we speak the word to one another, we worship with each other, and as the body of Christ actually has meaningful membership, it's not just an expression of these are my people and, and I'm with them and they're with me, but it's also an expression of the very means of grace. That membership is accountability. That membership is discipline. That membership actually puts mutual obligations on me and my brothers and sisters that we actually encourage and strengthen one another and fight the good fight together. And if we see that part, and we actually see church discipline as a necessary expression of love to Christ, love to his body, and love to individual members. And so this passage shouldn't seem like it's from outer space. This passage should be seen in the context of gospel love within the body of Christ. So last week we we saw in verse 1 the report of the immorality and uh, don't need to review that. We we went through detail in the first two verses, but this uh, immorality is reported to Paul. It is of such a kind that not even the Gentiles think it's okay. And um, Paul gets this report. And in verse 2, we see Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians' attitude. And the Corinthians' attitude was actually one of pride. And this is, I mean, this just shows you how, um, how easily uh, Christians can pervert things, right? So here is this situation of, of, of an incestuous relationship. A man is with his, his um, stepmother and... The Corinthians were proud about it. They thought, they thought that this was really just sort of a marvelous display of how tolerant they were and how loving they were and, and uh, how broad-minded they were. They'd have fit in great with 21st century America, wouldn't they? And Paul says, you're all puffed up, and instead you should have been brokenhearted, you should have mourned, and your mourning should have led to you putting him out. Using that, that, that dreaded word, excommunication. 
You should have excommunicated him. You should have been so broken over his sin, so shocked over his sin, that it led you to act in a way in which you were faithful to Christ and you put him out. All right? Now, they didn't. And so what we have in verses 3 through 5 is Paul's response to the Corinthians' attitude and inactivity. All right, that's, that's what we have. And so in verse 3, Paul says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present with spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. So Paul starts out the verse, actually somewhat emphatically, I, for my part, uh, is emphatic, but it is emphatic in the sense that it's contrasting Paul with the Corinthians. You have become puffed up. I for my part, right? So he's contrasting himself and the action that he's about to take or has taken with the Corinthians' arrogance and pride and and their inactivity. And then he says something that sounds pretty odd. He says, although absent in body, but present in spirit. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this is not as odd as it sounds. Paul's not talking about, you know, soul travel, right? He's not talking about being mystically present in some way. Um, you know, he's not talking about some sort of, um, some sort of you know, Star Trek transportation type thing. Um, what he's talking about, it, when you, actually, when you put all these phrases together, although absent in the body present in the spirit, uh, and then he says, um, I've already judged as though present, okay? So taking these together, I take what Paul's saying is simply this, I'm not physically present with you, okay? That part's clear, right? I'm not there with you in the assembly, but I'm going to act as though I were with you, so then the question becomes, well, in what way? I mean, is Paul just saying, um, you know, so, you know, you're about to go in for surgery and people say, you know, I'm with you in my thoughts. I don't really know what that means. I'm with you in my thoughts. So I'm present with you in my own mind, right? Something, something like that. Paul's not talking in, 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 in terms of, like that, um, I think he's saying something more significant than just, uh, hey, I'll be with you in thought, uh, even though, you know, or, you know, we, we even say stuff like this, right? Uh, well, I can't make it, but I'll be with you in spirit. What does that even mean? That's just weird, right? I'll be with you in spirit. What, is, what does that mean? Is that some, just some, some sort of lame way of saying I know you invited me, but there's something I'd rather do, so I'll be with you in spirit, and I'll be you know, at the baseball game in body, right? Paul is saying something here that is, that is um, important. I will be present with you by way of the spirit. In fact, I've already made a decision regarding this situation as though I were present with you. 
David Garland, he says, United in Christ in spirit, he is present with them through Christ's presence. Okay. So here's, here's my suggestion of what Paul's getting at, and we'll, we'll flesh it out as we move on. I would suggest to you that Paul has something like this in mind. I am writing to you as an apostle. Okay? I'm writing to you by the Spirit, thus I'm writing to you prophetically. What I'm writing to you is going to be read in your assembly, and I'm going to tell you what I've already decided to do regarding the offender. And so I will be present with you in, a, in, an, in an apostolic, prophetic, by the Spirit way when my letter is read to you as the authoritative word of an apostle, okay? So I don't think he thinks that he's going to be there, you know, mystically. I think the idea is, is that he's going to be there by means of the spirit as his word is being read apostolically and prophetically. We'll get more to that in a second. And notice what Paul says. I've already judged as though present this one who has done this. This, of course, it brings up the big contrast between the Corinthians' arrogant passivity and not doing anything in this situation, and Paul, in in fact, the way that Paul says this is, I have already judged, it's actually in the perfect tense, I've already made a, um, a, a judicial, ecclesiastical judicial decision in regards to this that stands. And so Paul, for his part, has already made a determination on this issue. He's already passed judgment on the one who has done this. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? He's already passed judgment on the one who has done this? You know the unbeliever's favorite verse, right? Judge not, lest ye be... It's got to be in the King James lest ye be judged, okay? That's, uh, unbelievers know that verse before they ever know John three sixteen, right? Okay, don't judge me. Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. Well, Jesus also says in John chapter seven, judge by righteous judgment. Okay? Paul's gonna say at the very end of this chapter, What do we have to do with judging outsiders, outside the church? That's God's job, so to speak. We judge those who are inside the church. And you're thinking, wow, Paul's destroying Christianity. I mean, isn't the highest virtue of Christianity to to not be a judgmental person? I've already judged this one as though I were right there with you. Well, see, this is, this is, all, this is all part of the, of, of, of the flimsy, uh, you know, weak thinking of modern evangelicals. 
We have, we have like almost no ability to make distinctions among anything. We hear judge not lest you be judged. And then we forget that there's actually a context to that, which leads us to believe that we are to judge according to a certain standard. And that very standard is the standard by which we'll be judged. In other words, don't be hypocritical in your judgment. John 7, be righteous in your judgment. What is it to judge somebody? Paul's not talking about, um, you know, I I think it's probably um, a sin, Jeff, to wear a, a hoodie in church. I mean, why in the world would you wear a hoodie? Seth, good grief. We're going to... Gracie, look at all these hoodies. This is scary. And we start to make these, these like human judgments, right? These human standards. And then we judge people by these human standards. Okay, that, that's not what Paul has in mind. And that kind of judgmentalism is condemned in Scripture. What Paul has in mind is actually making a judgment according to truth, upholding the standard of God. This isn't about legalism. It isn't about having a critical spirit. It's actually making, and see, here's another word that we could use for this term crino in the, in the New Testament, the word for judge. It's to make a determination. Actually, the kind of judgment that Paul's talking about is not passing eternal sentence on somebody, but making a determination based on biblical discernment. And you know, that, that actually is an absolute lost discipline in the modern church. We're not willing to actually be discerning about anything. We're rarely willing to make a determination about anything, lest, lest, of course, we commit the biggest cardinal sin, which is not violating the truth of God, but hurting somebody's feelings. I'm sure that Paul had in mind, how can I say these things without hurting this guy's feelings? Can I just tell you that he didn't care about this guy's feelings at this point? This guy needed to be rescued. Right? There comes a point where, 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 where biblical discernment and making a determination, making a judgment is actually for the good of others. And that's what Paul's doing here. And so he says... I've already passed judgment on the one who has done this, this, this grievous sin. Now, does that have a sense of authority with it? I've already passed judgment on this one who's done this. Well, there's a tremendous sense of authority. But Paul is not about to act unilaterally. He's not going to act alone. In fact, what he wants is for his action to spur the Corinthians on to right action. Okay? That's what he wants. So, in verse 4, he gives the instruction for the church. When you assemble and my spirit is present with you, 
Notice I, I left something out, actually. Is anybody... What's that? Okay, in the name of our Lord Jesus. So, Arnie's awake. How about the rest of you? You didn't even know. I could have just went on and just left it right out. Well, I left it out for a reason. It's because there's a huge question of where does it go? Do you ever diagram sentences in the sixth grade? How many of you have diagrammed a sentence in your life? Are you kidding? That many, how many of you have diagrammed a sentence within the last year in your life? <laughs> yeah, the homeschoolers. Yeah. Oh, do you have? The last two years? Okay, we'll go to back two years. Yeah, diagramming a sentence. Why do you diagram sentences? Well, because your teacher told you to. What do you do when you diagram a sentence? So, you know, I can't go a whole message without talking about grammar. Why do you diagram a sentence? It is to torture you, right? It's to actually cause you great pain and agony and mental, mental anguish. No, actually, diagramming sentences does something. What does it do? It forces you to figure out where every part of speech goes in that sentence. In other words, how every part of speech is related to every other part of speech in that sentence. That's what diagramming does. You have to put it somewhere. You have to put it in relationship somewhere. And so here we have this prepositional phrase, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and the question is, where does it go? Now, I realize that I'm far more excited about where a prepositional phrase goes than you probably are, but it could, go, it could go like this. Let me just give you the options here, okay? And all of these are legitimately or grammatically legitimate, okay? I have already judged such a one in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Here's another possibility. What do you think of this? The one who has done this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, grammatically, it's possible. What do you think logically? Who's the one who's done this? Who's he talking about? The offender that's doing unspeakable things. Do you think Paul actually thought he was doing that in the name of the Lord Jesus? No. Okay, so scratch that off. How about the next phrase? When you assemble in the name of our Lord Jesus. Is that possible? Okay, grammatically it's possible. And also, it really fits the idea of Matthew eighteen twenty, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them, which is, by the way, a passage on discipline. Um, it also could be this, deliver such a one to Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's going to be, um, that's a no-brainer, actually, because Paul's going to refer to uh, through the power of the Lord Jesus in, in, in a little bit. There's another option, and that is, that this phrase actually modifies the whole thing. So, on the one hand, it 
modifies the verb. I've judged. I've already decided to deliver or I've judged such a one in the name of the Lord Jesus. It also seems to be governing the, um, the, the, the phrase, when you assemble together. Okay? So Paul's not only made the judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus, but their assemblies in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the delivery of the offender over to Satan is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, why does Paul actually put this phrase in there? You think... Come on, I can read it. I know what it means. You're making much ado about nothing. No, actually, this is, this is part and parcel of, of, of what Paul sees himself doing. All of this, all of this, this discipline activity is going to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, which, by the way, means what? By the authority of Jesus. Paul's not ultimately doing this on his own. The, um, the Corinthians are not just assembling on their own. They're not going to make this decision on their own. All of it is, in a sense, under the umbrella of the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's how Paul sees himself operating. That's how he sees the church operating. It is all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's not saying, you know what, I think this guy's a real creep. I think you ought to kick him out. Paul's like, no, there is a higher authority by which we have to operate and live. And therefore, everything that we're going to do when we do this is in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the standard of our Lord Jesus, by the authority of our Lord Jesus. By the way, once the church moves away from that, it's no longer a church. Right? Paul makes this comment. He says, when you gather or assemble together. So this is the, this is the context in which this, is, which this instruction is supposed to take place. Since we're on such a great grammatical role tonight, this is, a, this is a genitive absolute. I love genitive absolutes are awesome. Because they simply give you a, um, a detail of the circumstance that you could completely leave out, but by including it, it actually fills out the picture. So you could say, I got bit by a dog. Okay? Or you could say, as I was walking to the post office, I got bit by a dog. The as I was walking to the post office is, that would be the genitive absolute. It fills out the picture for us. And so Paul is saying, here's here's what you need to do. When you assemble together as a church. Now, why does Paul put this in here? Well, because what they are about to do is not only in the name of the Lord Jesus, what they are about to do, they are to do as the church. And what we have to understand is that when the church gathers, there is a unique presence of Christ by his spirit with the gathered church. You know, again, we we lose so much because we don't pay attention closely to our Bibles. The church, (laughs) this will probably... 
you, you might, some of you might disagree with this, but I'm willing to, to make a defense of it. The church is only the church when she gathers as the church. Why, why, why do I say that? Well, because we sort of have this like common idea that uh, we have the church gathered and then the church scattered. Now, I think the New Testament doctrine of the church is the church is only the church when it's gathered. Okay? Why is that important? Well, because there is a unique presence of Christ by his spirit when the church gathers. This, by the way, Paul, Paul will say twice in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 and 18, when you gather as the church. Now, Paul is going to be rebuking them in chapter 11 because when they gather as the church, which should be a special, unique, God-exalting, Christ-centered gathering, what are they doing? They're getting drunk, they're eating their, their dinner before the poor people get there and everything else. So in other words, Paul's rebuking them. But the thing that makes the rebuke so stinging is that when you gather as a church, you're not being the church. Stop and think for a moment of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What do you have in Revelation 2 and 3? Seven letters to seven churches. And what do the candle stands, candlesticks represent? Revelation quiz. The, the churches. The churches. Who walks in the midst of the candle stands? The Son of Man. Christ himself. The picture that you get in the seven letters to the seven churches is that Christ is in the midst of his assemblies. He's walking in the midst of those candlesticks, right? Those candle stands. And as he does that, by the way, for those churches that are healthy and strong and moving in the right direction, that's a great blessing. But for those that are not, guess what? That's not really all that good news. Having Jesus show up to church is not always a good thing for everybody. But there is a a perspective in Revelation 2 and 3 that Christ is in the midst of his gathered people. This was one of the things that the reformers were, um, were, were, were so adamant about. The church of Rome had said, Christ is present in the Eucharist. And the Protestants would say, Christ is present in his people. Christ is in the midst of his people. And so when we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus... Christ is uniquely present with us by his spirit. Notice I say uniquely present. Because surely somebody's thinking, well, well, God's omnipresent. This is different. This is different. Was God in the land of Moab? Oh, come on, it's not hard. Yes. Omnipresent. He was in the land of Moab. Was he in the land of Moab in the same way that he was in the land of Israel, particularly in the temple? No. 
He was uniquely in the land of Israel because he was uniquely in his temple, right? And so the very same thing. And so what Paul's getting at here is that there is a a sense when you assemble together in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're gathering together as the church. When we gather together, it's great to see each other, right? I mean, it's nice to see, you know, I, I, I like Wednesdays. You know why? Because it's, it, um, it brings sanity to the week, right? I mean, to me it does. And, you know, it, it's that wonderful gathering in the middle of the week. And it's, it's, it's great to see you guys. And as wonderful as it is to see you, the best thing about gathering is not seeing you. The best thing about gathering is knowing that I'm going to be with God's people who are indwelt by God's spirit. And as we gather together, we're gathering together for a distinct purpose, which is to the honor and glory of God through his son who has bound us together. What makes you so wonderful to see is not that you're such great people. You are. But what makes you so wonderful to see is that you're Christ's people. And when we gather together, there's something unique about it. There's something wonderful about it. If the singing is great, all the better. If the singing's not that great, no harm, no foul. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, the singing was a little below par, so I think I'll leave early. It's not the way it works. And so what Paul's doing is he's driving home to the Corinthians that they are about to do something solemn as the church. And then he says this, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. So again, so we're all united to Christ, right? And we're all indwelt by the same spirit, right? And so I think what Paul's saying is, is that as you gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're united to the same Christ. I'm going to be present with you by the spirit and in a sense by proxy through this letter. And it's going to be carried out in power. You remember what he says at the end of chapter 4, right? So the kingdom of God is not just in word, but it's in power. Remember that? So do you want me to come with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness and love, right? That's Remember at the end of chapter 4. So what Paul's saying is, you know, hey, when I, when I do come to you, I'm going to be coming to you in the power of God's kingdom. And that power can be demonstrated in, in gentleness and love, or that power is going to, can be demonstrated... Uh, you know, with a stick. Here, my presence with you is going to be through the power of the Lord Jesus. In other words, this isn't just old Paul's opinion. This isn't just old Paul's agenda or Paul's wishes. I'm going to be present with you 
in the name and the authority, the power and the presence of the Lord Jesus. Gordon Fee, I think, actually gets this. He says, and this is in your notes, he says, the point, of course, is that through his letter, as it is read aloud among them, he is thus communicating his own prophetic word to them as that should be heard, as that should be heard in a tangible way through the reading of the letter in the gathered assembly as the Spirit communicates his prophetic apostolic ministry in their midst. Paul says, I'm present among you in spirit whereby I speak this prophetic word of judgment in your midst which he presupposes will occur as the letter is read aloud to them. By the way, you understand that the New Testament epistles are apostolic proxies. Why does Paul write to the Galatians? Because he can't be with the Galatians, the Galatian Christians, right? Why does he write to the Ephesians? Because he's not physically present with the Ephesians. And so the, the, the apostolic letters, in a sense, are apostolic proxies. They, they stand in the stead of the physical presence of the apostle in the assembly. And I think that that's what Paul's saying, is as this letter is read, it's as if I'm right there through the power of the Lord Jesus. And as I speak to you, I speak to you authoritatively in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, the Corinthians, this whole part here is not going to be lost on the Corinthians, especially the opponents. Because later, in 2 Corinthians, just read it to you. This is 10, 10 and 11. This is Paul, he says, for they, that's the opponents in Corinth, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Then Paul says this, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. You know what Paul's saying? There is no fundamental difference whether I'm with you via a letter or with you in person. The same authority is there. So you know what that means. How many of you would rather the Apostle Paul to walk into this building right now and finish the study. Be pretty cool, right? Okay. You wouldn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> You'd be like, great. Hope there's an interpreter, right? But it'd be kind of neat to see Paul come in here and actually just kind of finish this up. But here's, here's the point. Um, Paul is here. Wouldn't it be neat to actually hear Isaiah? Well, guess what? For seven years, we heard Isaiah. That's the way God communicates through his spirit, right? Is that, so, so Paul's point is, hey, I, 
my power and authority in the Lord Jesus is just as present with you if it's in a letter or if I'm standing right in front of you, right? Do you realize that listening to Jason preach through Luke, you're actually listening to the Lord Jesus? As Jason faithfully preaches Jesus, you're hearing Jesus. As Paul is faithfully preached, you're hearing Paul. And so Paul (laughs) saying, listen, what I'm about to do, so I'm giving you this letter, which which is my proxy in a sense, and I've already made an apostolic determination about this guy. You're going to read that determination, and this is what you're supposed to do. So Paul actually doesn't see himself as acting alone in this, but he sees the importance of the church assembling in Christ's name and then taking action on the basis of Paul's action, which are in the name and through the power of the Lord Jesus. Does it make sense? Should actually raise your expectation a little bit of what happens in church, <laughs> right? Right? You don't need somebody jumping up out of their seat and acting all crazy and go, wow, that's the Lord. Actually, you need somebody reading the Bible and then explaining it and applying it. And you go, that's the Lord, right? So what does Paul want him to do? Send chocolates and flowers. Invite him to a ball game. What the New American Standard does, everybody see if you have an NAS, you'll see in italics, I have decided in italics and then to deliver. The reason that the NAS does that is because probably to deliver is... um, is completing the idea of I've already judged him to deliver him. That's why they probably bring those together here. But this is what Paul wants him to do. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, of the flesh. Okay, that just does not sound very nice. We, uh, we excommunicated a guy one time many, many, many years ago. And as is our practice, when we, the congregation votes to remove somebody, I or Charlie will write a letter explaining the significance of the church's decision in doing this, right? And I always include... 1 Corinthians 5. And so I went to go see this guy who was living with his mother at this point. And I rang the doorbell and she answered the door. She saw it was me. She looked shocked. And she said, I'll never forget. I'll probably be, if I live to be as old as Bob Edwards, I'll probably remember this at 100 years old. She looked at me and she goes, what kind of pastor are you? And I said, what 
I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, what kind of pastor turns people over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Like, Bible ones? (laughs) This is what Paul says. Now, the language is odd to us because we don't talk like this. But Paul did, right? Paul did. And so so we're going to turn him over. We're going to hand him over to Satan. So this is the complement of of, of verse 3. I've decided to or I've judged to deliver over to Satan. Now, here's the the thing. Is that um, this is not some sort of curse. It's not some sort of hex. Okay? The language, and, the, and, and on this point, there's, there's a, a wonderful consensus among New Testament scholars and commentators, and that is that to hand somebody over to Satan is actually to put that person out of the Christian community and turn him over into Satan's sphere. So, so there's, a, there's a, a picture in the New Testament, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's own son, right? So, so we're in the kingdom of God's son, we're in the kingdom of light, we're under the protective covering of God's church, the Spirit's temple, Christ's body, and so to put somebody out is to put them out of the sphere of protection and put them back into, as it were, Satan's realm, Satan's domain, out from under the covering and the blessing of the church. So to put him out, to hand him over to Satan, is in a sense to put him out of the spirit-indwelt community where there's fellowship and there's gifts and there's love and there's teaching, all which are designed to do what? To nourish and edify the saints. And so the action is to take them from that realm, that realm of light and life, and send them out into the realm of darkness. That which is governed by the God of this age. The prince of the power of the air. Who is at work in the, spirit, in the, in the sons of disobedience. Now, Satan is not the willing instrument... Okay. It, it's, it's not as if Satan is going to say, oh, look, an opportunity to serve God. That's not the way Satan thinks, right? So by Paul saying, I'm, we're turning him over to Satan, it's not as if we're turning him over to Satan and Satan is a willing participant, but to turn him over into that realm where he will ultimately be battered and beat up by, as it were, the devil, the principalities and powers as Unwitting instruments. Not willing instruments, but unwitting instruments. You understand that the devil is the most unwitting instrument in the cosmos. Right? So, Paul says, in order to prevent me from becoming proud... A messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me, right? Do you think Paul means, and that's the thorn in the flesh, right, that Paul's going to talk about. Do you think that Paul's saying, God said, boy, 
Paul, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, might become proud. Satan, you know how dangerous it is to be proud. Would you mind helping out and making sure that Paul doesn't become proud? That's not the way it works. Satan thinks he's doing his best by trying to do to us the worst. And because God is God, God superintends Satan's efforts to do his worst to us, to work for our good. That's the way the thorn in the flesh works. And so, like Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil. By the way, he has a, uh, Paul has a similar statement. Um, I've decided to turn um, Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1.20, right? In other words, Paul did a, a similar thing with these two, and it's not that Satan was going to teach them, now this is how you don't blaspheme like me, but it would be by Satan's oppression and his... Uh, all of the wiles of the devil would be used by God. So Garland makes this point. He says, persons expelled from the Christian community might find it difficult to be reintegrated into society. Unlike today, when an expelled member can just join another church down the street, expelled members in this era could could find themselves in social limbo, neither fish nor fowl. Thistleton, Paul envisages that the offender, bereft of the approval and support of the community, will find his self-sufficiency and self-reliance eroded until he comes to reach a change of heart. So here's the goal. You put him over, to, hand him over to Satan, and then notice this, for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Got to speed it up just a little bit here. This is the anticipated result of turning them over to Satan. And so Paul sees this action of himself and the church of turning them over to Satan as remedial in some way. But the question is, is how? And so some people have thought the destruction of the flesh must mean, must mean death. Which I don't think that that's the case here. All right. Um, Some people have thought it must be like physical suffering, like maybe like Job. Um, Both death and, by the way, physical suffering don't quite fit the bill of the destruction of the flesh. Some people have had the idea that what's in view here is is a corporate idea. Because it doesn't say the destruction of his flesh. It says the destruction of the flesh. And so the corporate idea, going all, actually all the way back to Tertullian, said that Paul's ultimate concern, of course, was, was primarily not the offender, but the church. And so by putting the man out, they were destroying the church's sinful attitude in the very presence of the flesh. Now, by the way, that's true, but I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about. Um, so I think that flesh here, the destruction of the flesh, is the let's say, the carnal part of the man that's the offender. 
It's the source of his sin. It's the source of his rebellion. And so Paul sees the church as, as putting him out and, and turning him over to Satan with the hopes that that which in him, which has driven his lust and his rebellion and his sin against God and his sin against the church, that that actually would be destroyed, i.e. that he would end up coming to repentance, crucifying the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Spirit. So that's why Paul says, so we're going to put them out. And then we want that to happen. Notice the next phrase. In order that the Spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Here's the ultimate result. I think the ultimate result ends up being we do this in hopes of his final salvation. That, his spirit, that the spirit might be saved. I don't think Paul has some sort of radical dichotomy between flesh and spirit here, but that, that, that the person might be saved, notice, in the day of the Lord. So salvation, of course, in the New Testament is commonly expressed in terms of eschatology, in terms of the last day. So what Paul is hoping for, I think, is you take this guy and you put him out of the church, that is you put him back into the realm and the domain of darkness in the hopes that the flesh, that which is driving his lust, his passion, his, his insanity is destroyed so that he actually puts to death the deeds of the flesh and puts to death his earthly members, which we're supposed to be doing, right? And, and, and as a result, then his spirit may be saved. Now, what Paul's saying here is two things, really. First of all, this is cleaning out the old leaven. Don't ever forget that church discipline exists in part to clean out the leaven. But he also sees it as an individual concern. You've got to purify the church. You have to protect the church, but you do what you do out of love to the individual in hopes that he's saved, in hopes that he repents. In other words, you put him outside the church so that life becomes more and more miserable. Do you love your kids enough to pray? Lord, make them as miserable as they need to be in order to come to Christ. Right? Right? When, when I think of people that have gone wayward, I pray for their misery every day. Why? Because it's in that misery that they might experience the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. How many people actually come to Jesus uh, in, in repentance and faith in the midst of peace and prosperity and happiness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance and everything's going great? And so they're put out. They lose their privileges. They lose that protective covering. They lose the blessings of being the people of God. And then, they, Lord willing, they become miserable 
Satan tap dances across their head. Right? In one incident a number of years ago, after we had come to this conclusion that, um, that this text in Matthew 18, treating them as a tax collector, sinner, actually meant putting them out of the body. Um, so the first time we implement this, we, we, we tell this person, you can't, you're actually not welcome to come back until you repent. When they first heard that, they were sort of cavalier about it. You know, basically like, who cares? You know. First week goes by. Second week goes by. Third week goes by. She calls me. She says, I'm absolutely miserable. Sunday comes and I know where I'm supposed to be and I can't be there. Can I please come back? Well, let's talk. Let's see if you're repentant, right? It's not just, yay, she wants to come back. Let's roll out a red carpet because that that actually defeats the purpose. A lot of people will just want to come back, right? And so the idea is, is that Lord willing, they become miserable realizing what they've done and that that leads them to repentance, and so this passage is, is, is a powerful passage for us. And I, I would just, I, let me just summarize four things real quickly. First, the church's authority, which rests in the apostolic word, is real authority. The church's authority, which rests in the apostolic word, is real authority. Two, discipline, which seems severe, is God's way. It's God's way of love. And we need to trust God and his ways. God knows what love is better than we do. And it may seem hard. And it may seem awful. And it may seem heartbreaking. But God is the one who best defines love for us, not ourselves. We want to get them soft pajamas and chocolates, and God says, no, put them out. If you really love them, put them out. Number three, discipline is the task of the whole church, not just a few leaders. The whole church is to actually exercise love. Number four, discipline should be remedial or restorative, but always within the priority of the church's purity. Therefore, love actually remains the motivation, both corporately, love for the church, and for the offender. And so, God's ways are not easy, right? This isn't easy. Loving somebody in the way that God says, this is actually what real love looks like, and by the way, it's far more effective than what you think you're going to accomplish, is sometimes really, really, really hard. We talk about tough love, right? Ever had to exercise tough love with one of your kids? If you have adult children, you know, sometimes you have to do really hard things, like tell them it's time to leave. 
Some of you wouldn't actually have enough love to love them that way. And you're going to call your own emotional convenience love. And it's not. It's love of self. The church can fall into the same trap. Love of self, love of convenience, which causes us to take a detour around the really, truly loving things that God calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we know it's hard, but we pray for the courage and the grace and the love to do this when necessary. Give us the wisdom to know when it's necessary. Give us the courage to apply it when necessary. Help us to remember that we're to do all things in love. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.